Tonight's topic is called Revelations to Women. And before we launch into this topic, would you bow your heads with me as we have a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, this evening as we open the Bible together, it is my prayer that every one of us here tonight would be filled with your spirit. That as we open the Bible together, as we look at these passages, that the words would come to life before our eyes and that we would understand what the Bible is teaching. For we ask these things in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Do you know that if you open the phone book, and I don't even know if anybody uses the phone book anymore, but if you open the phone book and you go under churches, almost for every letter of the alphabet, you can find a church. Like A is for Anglican, right? B is for Baptist, right? And then C, there's a lot of C's. You could have the Congregational Church, Church of Christ. There's a bunch of ones. And as you go down the list, it's, I mean, not every letter, but there's a church for almost every letter of the alphabet. Have you noticed, too, that the reason why people go to church varies? And, you know, I, I, I think I mentioned to you that for the last 11 years, I have been holding seminars like this around the world. One of the questions that I ask my guests, I say to them, why do you go to the church that you go to? You'd be amazed at what you hear. So I actually had one gentleman tell me, well, this was in Wisconsin. He said, the church that I go to was built by my grandfather. Like physically, you know, the building was built by him. So he goes to that church because it was in his family. Like his family was connected to that church for many years. Now, on the flip side of the coin, I had, a one, I had one woman in one of my seminars. She said to me, when I first moved to this town, I found the closest church to my house. I thought, okay, you know, that's, okay. I mean, you know, I'm not saying that's the best reason, but that's what she chose. It was the closest one to her house. I had a dentist. This is a true story. He was uh, in college when one of his professors said, if you, if, after you graduate from dental school, here's what you do. You move to a new town, go to the biggest church in town and join, and then let it be known that you're a dentist. And he said, you will develop a practice based on being part of that church. And I thought, okay, I mean, I guess if that's how you want to do it. But I'm going to tell you honestly, folks, when it comes to knowing why we go to the church that we go to, this is just like any other belief that you have in God's word. This is what it says in 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a what? A reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. This verse tells me that for everything we believe, we need to be able to give others a reason. Does that make sense? Now, I am not criticizing these people that I spoke with. I think they're wonderful people. But in my mind, just because your grandfather built that building that to me is not a valid reason that one should attend a particular church. Does that make sense? I think you would all agree. Being the closest church to your house is not a valid reason either. And going to the biggest one just so that you can expand your dental practice, that's, that's not a good reason. Tonight, I want to give you a reason for why I am what I am from the Bible, Okay. And to do that, I need to share with you a prophecy that's found in the book of Revelation. Now, this prophecy is found in chapter 12, and I want to go through this with you tonight. As we look at Revelation ch chapter 12, I want you to notice what the Bible describes here. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a what? A woman, clothed with the sun, and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. Now, one of the first tasks that any Bible student has to undertake when studying Revelation is to first make the decision, is what I am reading literal or symbolic? Because in the book of Revelation, you have both literal and symbolic elements. Sometimes they're mixed together. And so our goal in this study tonight is first to ascertain uh, what we're looking at. Is this literal or symbolic? Well, one of the first things that we can tell right away is that the Bible says that there is a woman and she appears where? In, in heaven. But notice what she's wearing. What is she wearing? The sun, right? That probably gives us a clue. It's not literal. But notice what else. It says that she's standing on the moon. 
And then upon her head, now look at carefully what it says. It doesn't say she has a crown with 12 stars. That's not what it says. She has a crown of 12 stars, okay? That's important. And I want to point out that this language, this imagery is clearly not literal. Just the celestial bodies that is being described around this woman indicates, just in scale and magnitude, this is symbolic. And I hope you can see that because we're, we're talking about a woman on the moon who's wearing the sun and she has a crown made up of stars. Are you with me? So here the language is clearly symbolic. And so what we need to do is we need to go through this and define the symbolism. Now, something that I want to tell you is that the book of Revelation, it borrows its language and imagery from other parts of the Bible. And so what I'm going to do tonight is that as I explain these symbols, I want to do so not just from one part of the Bible, like the Old Testament, but I'm going to do my best to show this to you in multiple places. Okay, so the first symbol, the primary symbol that we want to interpret tonight is this. What does a woman represent in Bible prophecy? So when you go through Scripture, not everywhere that a woman appears, but in the metaphorical or analogous use of a woman, it's consistent. And I want to show you this from the Bible. 2 Corinthians 11.2, Paul says, I am jealous over you. Now remember, Corinthians was a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, okay? So it was going to be read in the church, and this is what he said to the congregation. I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you. Now remember, who is he speaking to? To the church. That I may present you as a chaste virgin to who? So notice that Paul is speaking to the church at Corinth, and he says to the church, like, you know, this is being read in front of everybody. I want to present you as a church like a, like a beautiful bride to the bridegroom Christ. Can you see that? And so in this imagery, the church is represented by a woman. Did you notice that? Because she's the virgin, and then Christ is the groom. Can you see that? This has, like, like marriage language in it. All right. That's not the only place. John 3, verse 29, notice what Jesus said. He said, he that hath the bride, I'm sorry, this is not Jesus, I apologize. The one speaking here is John the Baptist, okay? And this is what the Bible says, he that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. Now, I want to ask you a question. In this little verse, there are three parties. Let's, let's, let's name them. There's the bride, the, and then the friend. Okay, so who's speaking here? John the Baptist. Okay, so first let's define this. Who's the bridegroom? It's Jesus. That, that's not hard to see. Jesus is the bridegroom, and I think you can already tell that the friend of the bridegroom is none other than John the Baptist. That leaves one party to be, to be defined. Who is that? The bride. Who's the bride? It was the church. It was the peop God's people, Israel at that time. Does that make sense? So don't miss that. Again, this imagery is consistent. It's talking about the church as a woman. Did you know there's a whole book in the Old Testament, an entire book where this analogy is being used? Do you know the story of Hosea? Hosea is a unique book. God told this prophet, he said, go marry this, for lack of a better word, she was a, a harlot. And he said, look, go marry her. And then she would keep running away, and God would say, go get her. Now, God is not giving marital advice to everyone to go marry. No, no. What God is saying is, look, this is an analogy, okay? And so what God was showing was, let me read this to you from Hosea. The beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea. And the Lord said to Hosea, go. Take thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms. Now, notice this. The reason he had to marry that woman is because for the what? For the land hath committed great whoredom departing from the Lord. Now, let's pause. When it says the land, is that talking about the dirt? No, when it says the land, what's it talking about? His people. Does that make sense? The people kept worshiping idols and going to other gods. And God was using this analogy of his wife kept leaving and when the people saw that, they realized, hey, this is connected. Do you see that? 
So again, the symbol here of the woman was representative of God's people. So just so that you're clear, if it's a faithful woman, what kind of a church is it? Faithful church. If it's an impure woman, what kind of a church is it? Impure church. Are, are, are we together? Okay, because again, the woman is, it can be good or bad. And so in this passage, this obviously has a negative, excuse me, a negative connotation. All right, so let's go on. What is the woman wearing? Do you remember? The sun. Now, I'm going to give you a clue. The Bible is pretty consistent. What you wear in Scripture is symbolic consistently of the same thing. And in this imagery, it's no different. The woman wears the sun. Let me share with you a passage in Scripture where it talks about the sun in a metaphorical sense. It says, but unto you that fear my name shall the what? The sun of righteousness arise with healing in his wings. Now, let me pause here. Did you notice that in this verse, the, did you notice how it's spelled S-U-N? Did you notice that? The sun is equated with what? Righteousness. Did you see that? The sun, the S-U-N of what? Righteousness. This is called a metaphor, right? So I want you to notice that in Scripture, what you wear symbolically, right? Like, like, for example, it says that all of our own righteousness is like what? Filthy rags. You know that, right? And look, this, the parable of the prodigal son, all of these stories, it's consistent. It's again and again. When he goes to the father, the father gives him a new coat. It's symbolic of when we come to Christ, we receive his righteousness. Does that make sense? So this imagery is consistent throughout the Bible. And by the way, what is righteousness? Well, this is what Psalms 119 verse 172 says. My tongue shall speak of thy word, for all thy commandments are what? If you look up righteousness in the dictionary, it simply means right doing, okay? And if you really think about it, right doing is always tied to obedience to God's law. Does that make sense? So don't miss this. The woman is clothed with the sun the S-U-N of righteousness, which simply means this is a church because the woman represents a church, and this church is clothed with the sun, which means she is keeping God's what? Commandments. Does that make sense? She is clothed with his righteousness. Now, she's standing on the moon. That's a clue. Why do I say it's a clue? Because the moon, it supports her. Does that make sense? It's her foundation. Are you with me? Now, don't miss this. In Scripture, when the Bible talks about the second coming, it makes it very clear that this planet Earth will be destroyed and that the sky, the atmosphere, it will be burned up. It, it, it describes that over and over and over again in the Bible. But you know what's interesting? The Bible does not say anything about, or it does not mention anything happening to the moon. In fact, in the Bible... The moon is described in connection with something that doesn't go away. Let me read this to you from Psalms 89, verse 37. It says, it shall be established forever as the what? Now, now I would just want to pause here for a moment. When Scripture wants to equate something with perpetuity, like something that doesn't go away, it actually equates it with the? With the moon. Did you notice that? It says it shall be established forever as the moon. Now, I want to be clear. In this life, in this world, there's nothing that lasts forever except Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand how long? So let's, let's review what we've just learned. If you go through the whole Bible, the moon is never described as being destroyed. It's going to be there. In fact, in, in Isaiah 66, which is called the Little Bible, I'm sorry, Isaiah, which is called the Little Bible, the last chapter talks about from one new moon to another, all flesh will come and worship before God. Even after the second coming, the cycles of the moon will remain constant. And so the moon is always equated with something that just endures forever. Well, if the woman is standing on this, it must represent something that lasts forever. And we know the only thing in this life that lasts forever is God's word, which means that this is a church 
which keeps God's commandments, and they are standing on God's word. Does that make sense? Now, I'm going to show this to you in contrast with another woman, because Revelation is a study of contrasts. Everything you find in the book of Revelation, it has a counterpart. If you read about the New Jerusalem, guess what? There's another city called Babylon. If you read about the lamb that was slain, you'll read also about a dragon. And so everything has contrasts in the book of Revelation. Well, the woman in Revelation 12, her contrast is Revelation 17. Let me read this to you. By the way, tomorrow night, I'm going to break everything in this passage, in this chapter down. Like, we are going to go through this chapter. The Bible says, and there came one of the seven angels which, talked, which, had seven, which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying unto me, come hither. I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit, and, and I apologize, the reference doesn't change, but this is verse 3 by now. I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in what color? Purple and what else? Scarlet. And decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of what group of people? Of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Now, let me point something out to you. When we read this passage, it becomes apparent that there is a striking contrast. Let's review. The woman in Revelation 12, what is she wearing? The sun. And I shared with you, the sun is equated with righteousness. What you wear is equated with righteousness, right? And righteousness is simply obedience to God's commandments. Now, don't miss this. The woman in Revelation 17, what colors is she wearing? Purple and scarlet. Now, if you're wearing purple, and I'm not looking, but if you're wearing purple or scarlet, don't get nervous, okay? The point is, symbolically speaking, those colors are representative. Did you know that in the Bible, the color scarlet is equated with sin? Isaiah 118, though your sins be as scarlet, right? So what is sin again? Sin is the transgression of God's law, right? So do you see that these are exactly the opposite? What is the woman standing on in Revelation 12? The moon, it's a symbol of something which lasts forever, and that's only God's word, right? What is the woman in Revelation 17, what is she supported by? A beast, and it's a scarlet-colored beast. Now, don't forget this. A beast in Bible prophecy represents a political power, so don't miss this. A woman represents a church, and a beast represents the political power. When a woman rides the beast, that means it's a church which controls the state. Does that make sense? Now, this is a historical fact. Whenever the church loses the Holy Spirit, she always appeals to the state to enforce her dogmas because she doesn't have the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? And I could go on, but tomorrow night, I'm going to explain why she's called Babylon, why she's a mother. I'm going to explain all of those things because this symbol is a potent reminder of what Satan is doing in Christianity today. We're going to talk about that tomorrow night. So, the woman in Revelation 12, she has something on her head. She has a crown of 12 what? Stars. Now, that in itself, the location is, again, it's a clue. Because in the Bible, stars are considered to be a symbol for people that need guidance. Let me, let me show you. Revelation, sorry, Daniel 12, verse 3. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament. And they that turn many to righteousness, they are as the what? As the stars forever and ever. Now, look, in this passage, the Bible equates people that point others to righteousness as what? As stars. Did you see that? Now, let me point something out to you. Before there was GPS, before there was even compass, did you know that when sailors went out on the ocean, 
Did you know that they, all they had to do was look up into the night sky? Did you know they called the stars the guiding lights? You understand that, right? Now, what I want to make, what I want to point out to you is Satan has corrupted this. Because in the Bible, people that teach others righteousness, they're called stars. When you use the word stars in our modern culture today, what do people think of? Hollywood. If you follow these people, you will be disappointed, right? Does that make sense? You know, I mean, let's be honest. That, you know, so the point that, that I want to make is that biblically speaking, teachers that point others to the path of righteousness are called stars, right? Now, what's interesting is the number of stars on the woman. Now, let's review something. What does the woman represent again? Church, right? And on her head, you could say like governing, there are 12 stars or teachers of righteousness or the word, teachers of the word, right? Okay, so here's a question for you. You know, Acts calls Israel the church in the wilderness, and I want you to think about this for a moment. In Israel's time, did God have 12 leaders over his church to guide his people? Did he, yes or no? He did. The 12 patriarchs, the sons of Jacob, isn't that right? But I also want you to think about in the New Testament, did God's church also have 12 appointed leaders that were to guide his people? The 12 disciples, right? Okay, so I hope you can see now that this woman and the symbolism surrounding her is all connected. It's a symbol of God's church through the ages that are faithful to God by keeping his commandments and founded upon his word. That's the symbolism that we're looking at. Let's notice what the Bible says. There appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pained to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns upon his heads, and his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now, make note of that, because in verse 5 it says, and she brought forth a man-child, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. Now let's pause here for a moment. Look at verse 5 and tell me, who was the only child ever born that was destined to rule all nations that was caught up to God and to his throne? Who is it? It's Jesus. There's no other explanation for verse 5. Now, I want you to think with me very carefully that when Jesus was born, do you remember that there was an attempt on his life? Do you remember that? Herod tried to have him killed. Isn't that right? So just keep this in mind as we read verse 5 and as we talk about verse 6. Now, here's what it says. And the woman fled into the where? Wilderness. Now, before we keep going, I want to point something out. I've had people come to my seminar and even, okay, so a number of years ago, I was in Costa Rica and I was driving by a school and I forgot the exact name of the school. But there was a statue outside of the school. It was of a woman. And on her head, she had a crown of, guess what? 12 stars. And she was standing on the moon, okay? And when I saw the statue, it's, the name of the school was something like, you know, the school of our beloved and something to do with Mary. Now, one of the most common things that people ask me in my seminar is, is this woman, is it the Virgin Mary? And the answer is no. Now, that confuses people. But let's review. We know that in the symbolic passages of Scripture, a woman represents a church. Now, did you notice that in verse 5, and let me back up here, the woman gives birth to a child. Who is that child? It's Jesus. So the confusion is, wait a minute. Mary gave birth to Jesus. But let's review. We know that a woman represents a church, and we know that this woman, she exists before the child is born, but if we keep reading in Revelation 12, she also exists after the child is born, which means she represents the Old and New Testament church. 
I want to ask you, when Jesus was born, what race was he? He was Jewish. Now, don't miss this. Jesus came through the channel of the church, and that's why he was born Jewish. Does that make sense? Because that was the vehicle that God used to bring the Messiah into this world. Does that make sense? The seed of Abraham, literally. But we, we know that this woman in Revelation 12 is not a symbol for Mary. Why? Because it says, the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. Now let's review. Is the woman literal or symbolic? Symbolic. Is the sun that she wears literal or symbolic? You get the point, right? Is the moon literal? It's, you get it, right? Is the time period in this passage, is it literal or symbolic? It's symbolic. We know that this is describing a period of 1260 what? Years. It began in 538 and it ended in the year 1798. Are we together so far? By the way, this is the same time period that's mentioned in verse 14. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place where she is nourished for a time, times, and half a time from the face of the serpent. And I want to point something out. I have not given you a history of what happened to God's faithful period during this time. You see, we talked about what the papacy was doing during this time. She had political and religious power. She persecuted anyone that stood in her way. She stamped out the Bible. And during this time, it was called the Dark Ages. Why? Not because the sun didn't shine, because they didn't have the light of God's word. Does that make sense? But something that I need to tell you is that during this period, God's true church, his faithful people, they fled into the wilderness. They went into places on the earth where there were not a lot of cities or development. And here's some history during this period. Great numbers were driven from their habitation with their wives and children, stripped and naked. Many of them were inhumanely massacred. Now, I'm not telling you that this is easy reading, but if you want to read about this period, there's a couple of books that go into this. One of them is called Daubigny's History of the Reformation. Um, there are other books like J.A. Wiley, The History of the Walden Seas, but these books outline faithful believers that would not submit to the authority of the Catholic Church. And what did they do? They went to these remote areas of the world where people wouldn't bother them and they could worship God with freedom. If you go to Italy today, there is a part in the, in the, uh, in the country that's known as the Waldensian Valleys. Now, a friend of mine went on a trip there and he took these pictures these are the actual places where some of these, you could call them Protestant groups, they went, do you notice how hilly it is? Nobody can farm that. These groups were driven to these kinds of places because they wanted to be free from the persecution of the papacy. So they found refuge, they built these primitive huts, but one of the things that they did was they took control of their children's education because they recognized that without training their young people, they would soon succumb to the world and to all the other evils that existed. And so they, they spent a great deal of time educating them. And the central book of their education was the Bible. Now, remember, the printing press would not come into play until 15th century. At, during this period of history, everything that they had from the Bible was copied by hand. Now, I want you to think carefully for a moment. If you had to copy a part of the Bible that contained the gospel but was short, which book would you copy? So the book that was most copied by these people was the gospel of Mark. It was the shortest, right? And so you know what they would do? This is a true story. They didn't just believe in like ascetic living. They didn't think, okay, I'm going to shut myself out from the world and leave everyone else to just be lost. No. They said, okay, we're going to not only teach our young people, but we're going to train them to be missionaries. So what did they do? They got their young people and they made sure they were thoroughly educated in the Bible. And then they sent these young people into the great cities of the world, universities. They had them enrolled. 
And these young people carried a secret. This is true story. They, in their clothing, would have sewn into the lining pages from the Gospels of Mark. And when they found a group of young people that were receptive, they would read from the actual Bible. Now, remember, there was no printing presses at this time. So to hear the Bible in the language of the people, you either had to read classical languages like Hebrew and Greek or Latin, but these Waldenses, they were able to preserve the Bible, and during this period, they were able to bring reformation and revival to places all over Europe. Now, I, this is the sad part. Some of the people that they studied with would report them, and then some of these people were caught and they were killed. But all throughout Europe, you know, sometimes the Waldenses, they disguise themselves as merchants. They would sell like gems and, and trinkets and these things. But their whole goal was not to make money. It was, we want to share the light of God's word. Does that make sense? I want you to know that the Waldenses today, we can credit them with helping us see the importance of the Bible in the believer's life. Does that make sense? Because if it wasn't for the Waldenses, we might not have had the privilege of having Scripture place, have such a primary role in the believer's life. Yes, the printing press would have come, Bibles would have been. The Waldenses gave their lives to share the Word of God with people that couldn't read it. And as they did this, as I said, revivals broke out all throughout Europe. Even to this day, that part of, of Italy is called the Waldensian Valleys. It's named after the people who treasured the Bible as it read for the common person. So not long after that, in the, what's now called the Czech Republic, there was a Catholic monk by the name of John Hus. John Hus, because he was Catholic and because he was in the, the clergy, he could read the Bible. You know what he discovered? As he was studying the Bible, he realized we ought to obey God and not the church. Now, I know that some of you are sitting here tonight and you're thinking, everybody knows that. Of course everybody knows that. Back then, that was a revolutionary idea. Because back then, everybody was trained. You just listen to whatever the church tells you to do and that's it. You don't question, you don't think about anything on your own. Whatever the church says, that's what you do. I want to tell you that when John Huss began teaching that we ought to obey the Bible and God rather than the church, this was a revolutionary idea. And you know what? Catholic Church didn't like it. You know what they did? They burned him alive. And you know what? To, to John Huss's credit, the truths that he taught, even to this day, are anchored as a foundation of Protestantism. True Protestants, they don't accept what some church teaches they accept what the Bible says, and they want to obey God rather than man. Can you say amen? And I hope, if you're watching this, I hope that you're not a slave to some particular, you know, ideology or whatever, that you accept the Bible and God's authority over any man's. Can you say amen to that? After John Huss, of course, there was the monk by the name of Martin Luther. Martin Luther is credited as one day going up Pilate's staircase. It was a form of penance on his knees. And while he was doing that, a flash of scripture came into his mind. It was uh, Romans chapter 3. But it said, the just shall live by faith. Now, that may seem simple to us, but do you realize that when Martin Luther heard this, this came in his mind, it right away was contrasted to what he was doing. He was trying to earn righteousness by actions, by works. And so when Luther heard this, it was like a lightning bolt went off in his mind. And immediately, he was, he was awakened to the realization that it's not by works of sacraments or penance. It is by faith that we are made right with God. Guess what? Martin Luther's teaching spread like a match being lit in a hayfield. People began to leave the church in droves because of the oppression and the tyranny of these teachings of the Catholic Church. 
And Luther developed some powerful enemies. They just wanted to kill him. But you know what? God's truth was marching and no one could stop it. As it began to grow and as it began to develop, Martin Luther's teachings began to spread and make no mistake, people began to learn that it's by faith through grace that we're saved. It's not works. You can't buy indulgences to save yourself. You can't do sacraments to save yourself. It's only by faith through grace that we're saved. Today, Christians, we take this for granted. Can you say amen? Because we know that no amount of actions, no amount of good works can ever save us. It's by faith through grace in Jesus that we receive the gift of eternal life. Can you say amen? After Martin Luther, there was a, another Catholic priest in the city of Zurich, Switzerland. And this Catholic scholar by the name of John Calvin, as he began to study the Bible, it became apparent to him that not only does God expect us to be justified by faith, but God expects us to grow in grace. Now, all of us sitting here are like, ah, everybody knows that. Not back then. This was a revolutionary idea. Not only is a person given the gift of justification, which means their past sins are all covered, but God also expects that they can be sanctified by learning and growing in grace through Jesus. And this was a revolutionary idea. Now, here's what's very interesting. By this point, Martin Luther had become this pillar in the Reformation, and the followers of Luther, believing that Luther was led by God. Now, was Luther led by God? Absolutely. Was Luther perfect? No. I don't want to discredit him before you, but you need to know, if you read the history of Martin Luther, he was a rough guy. Like, he liked alcohol. He had some other problems. He was anti-Semitic. There's a lot of issues with Martin Luther. Did God use him? Absolutely. But don't miss this. The people who were at that adhered to Martin Luther's teachings, they reasoned like this. They said, we know God led Martin Luther. And if God led him, but Luther didn't teach what you're teaching, then it must not be that important. These followers of Luther later became known as the Lutherans. And I know I'm really abbreviating it, but you get the point, right? Okay. Um, by the way, I'm going to read to you a statement. This was to a group of pilgrims who were getting ready to cross over on the Mayflower, and their pastor, who was supposed to go with them, didn't end up going, but he gave them this speech, and this is what he told them. If God should reveal anything to you by any other instrument of his, be as ready to receive it as ever you were to receive any truth of my ministry. For I am very confident that the Lord hath more truth and light yet to break forth out of his holy word. They were burning and shining lights in their time, yet they penetrated not into the whole counsel of God. But were they now living, would be as willing to embrace further light as that which they first received. Now, what is he saying? He's saying, look, you're going to go to the new world, and you're going to hear other preachers. When you hear them, don't just close them off because they're not me. Now, I want to just make this point. He understood this principle that God is ever trying to lead his people into greater and greater light. Does that make sense? And do you know why churches change pastors? Do you know why? Think about this. At some point, the pastor has basically expended his, his knowledge in ministry. And at some point, he's not productive anymore, so they bring someone else in. Does that make sense? So one sows... One waters, but God gives all the increase. Does that make sense? But that was his point. He was saying, look, don't be closed just because you hear someone else preaching over there. If it's from God's word, just pretend it was me. That's in essence what he was saying. So after John Calvin, there came these uh, believers that were studying the Bible. And they said, you know, when we look at how Jesus was baptized... He was baptized in the water. By the way, during this time, do you know how people were baptized? Sprinkling and infant baptism. And these believers understood that Jesus, by the way, folks, you can never go wrong if you do what Jesus did. Can you say amen? 
they saw Jesus was baptized in the water, and he came up out of the water. And they said, you know what? We have to follow the example of Jesus. So these believers, and by the way, during this time, if you got baptized the way the Bible taught, they'd kill you. I know that sounds crazy, but that's how the conditions were during this period. So these people that believed in baptism by immersion, they were called Anabaptists. Anna means again. So they were being baptized. They had been baptized as infants. But remember what I shared with you in the seminar? Infants don't have the ability to be taught the truth, believe it, and repent of their old life of sin. So the Bible doesn't actually teach infant baptism. So these believers said, that's not real baptism. We have to be baptized the way Jesus was baptized. And so they would be baptized, even on penalty of death, they would be baptized, and they became known as the Anabaptists. You know what happened? The followers of John Calvin and Luther, they said, we know that God led these men. And if God led these men, but they didn't talk about it, it must not be that important. Do you know what church developed as a result of John Calvin's teachings? Presbyterian church. Now, you know what's interesting? My father was a Presbyterian minister. The Presbyterian church to this day does not baptize by immersion. Just sprinkling. Interesting. Anyway, let's go on. Then in uh, Oxford, England, there were two brothers, John and Charles Wesley. These two brothers, they were theology majors, but you know what's interesting? They had a club, like a ministerial association in the school. And they would meet together, and, you know, people poked fun at them. They, they called it the holiness club, okay? But you know what these brothers advocated? They said, look, every day you need to read the Bible. Now, you know, most Christians today, they're like, I know that. Not back then. Back then, they just thought, like, you know, you just go to church once a week. But these brothers said, look, you got to read the Bible every day. Every day you have to pray, and every day you have to help the poor. Well, the other students in the school started, like, not liking these guys. And this is, this is true. As a term of, like, scorn or derision, they referred to these brothers and their group as Methodists. I'm serious. You can look this up. That's how the name got started. And, uh, you know, they basically were deriding them because they had a method to their religion. Does that make sense? Well, guess what? Because they didn't emphasize baptism by immersion, the Anabaptists kind of separated themselves all by themselves. And you know what they became known as? The Baptists. <laughs> so, after that, there was a Baptist preacher by the name of William Miller. William Miller's contribution to this, like, discovery of lost truths was that as he read the Bible, he discovered that the second coming is not when Jesus comes into your heart. It's when Jesus comes in the clouds of glory. And he comes with the angels. The dead are resurrected. You're going to be caught up in the air. You're going to be taken to heaven. And when William Miller learned this, he began to preach it, and it caused a revival in the United States. Not only was William Miller preaching this, but around the world, there were other preachers that were also equally inspired to begin understanding the second coming. Well, guess what? Some of these followers of the Charles and, uh, John and Charles Wesley brothers, they said, you know, John and Charles Wesley were led by God. They never talked about the second coming. And as a result, they kind of did their own thing, and their followers did their own thing, and today that's why we have the Methodist Church, which still doesn't place great emphasis on the soon return of Jesus. After William Miller, there was another group of believers that discovered that God wants you to keep his commandments. Most Christians believe that, but during this time, this was kind of a revolutionary idea because this teaching actually included the Sabbath. People had thought, you know, the Sabbath was only for the Jews. But they began to see, wait, the Sabbath was instituted from creation. It had nothing to do with the Jews. Have you ever seen the 400-meter the relay race? Have you ever seen that? The 4 by 100 where they go around the track, and each, as each one goes, he passes the baton to the Have you seen that? 
That's how it was during the Dark Ages. You see, the Catholic Church suppressed all truth by destroying the Bible and the languages of the people. But, you know, God had men, faithful men, that began to uncover the truth. And it's like they each had one leg of the race. They uncovered something, and it brought back light and truth to God's people. And then the next one carried it a little further, and a little further, and a little further. And that's why today we stand on the shoulders of these men. Like the Walden Seas, I believe with all my heart that the Bible is the foundation of the Christian's faith. Amen? Like John Huss, I believe that we have to obey God rather than man. Amen? And like Martin Luther, I also believe that we are saved by grace through faith, not by works. Amen? And then, of course, we have the... Um, we have John Calvin who taught that there was growth. And, you know, every Christian understands that God doesn't just forgive you, but he wants you to become holy like him. Amen? And after that, of course, we also agree and believe that God expects us to be baptized by immersion. We covered that in the seminar. You remember that? Not only that, I believe fervently that we should pray every day. We should do good for others. We should read our Bible every day. And not just that, but I also believe that God expects us to be ready for his soon return, that, he, that he's coming in the clouds, that he's given us prophecies in the Bible to let us know when his coming is near. And I do believe that we're, we don't, God doesn't expect us to keep his commands to be saved, but if I love Jesus, I want to keep his commandments. Does that make sense? And so this is the legacy of truth that these men brought. But now I want you to look with me at Revelation 12, verse 15, because the Bible says, and the serpent... So, in the previous verse 14, we have the woman going into the wilderness for 1,260 years. And then in verse 15, the Bible says, The serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. Now, the Bible is describing here a time after the 1,260 years where there is persecution against the woman. And the Bible tells us that the who? The earth helped the woman. Now, I want to pause here. In the book of Revelation, you have events that transpire from one of two places. Either the beast comes up out of the sea or the beast comes up out of the earth. If you study Revelation 13, the beast, there are two beasts and one comes up out of the sea, one comes up out of the earth. Now, the sea in the Bible is not hard to interpret. It says, and he said unto me, the waters which thou sawest, where the horse sitteth, are what? Peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So waters symbolically in the book of Revelation represent a place with lots and lots of people. But the earth represents a place that has almost no people. Now, why is that important? Well, look again. At the end of the 1260 years, the Bible says the earth helped the Woman, which means that the woman, for refuge from the serpent, which is casting out a flood, the woman flees to the earth, and the Bible says the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon cast out of his mouth. Now, let's review something. What does the woman represent again? Church. And let's review. For 1260 years, from 538 to 1798, where did the woman go? She fled into the wilderness, right? But at the end of this time period, the Bible says that the woman receives help from the earth. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. What's the time period? It's at the end of the 1260. What's the year again? 1798. I want you to think about a place on planet earth where people who were seeking to escape persecution from a church that controlled the state went where there was not a lot of people so that they could worship God in the freedom of their conscience. Where did they go? They came to this place called America. That's why the new world was really first inhabited. People wanted to get away from the church that controlled the state. I said this early in the seminar. The Bible only mentions nations as they mention God's word, God's work, or his people. And prophecy did describe the role and the rise of the United States. Not in this seminar, but in a future seminar, we will talk about America's role in Bible prophecy. But now I want to come to verse 17, because here's what it says. It says, and the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. 
which keep the what? The commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. I want you to look on the screen there. Do you see that word, the remnant of her seed? Do you see that? So let's review. What's the word seed mean? What does seed mean in the Bible? It means offspring. That's what it means. It means like descendants, right? But when it says the remnant of her seed, ladies, you already know. A remnant is always the what piece? It's the last. You cannot have a, a remnant of a bolt of cloth in the middle of it. They will always wait until you're at the very, very end. The remnant is always the last piece. Does that make sense? That's why when the Bible talks about the remnant, it's talking about God's last day church. This is how another translation of the Bible, this is a paraphrase of the Bible, but it says the devil was angry and went to make war with the last day church. Do you know, if you go into town around Westchester and you go to the church pastor and you say, Pastor, is your church the remnant church? If he knows his Bible, he will understand what you're asking is, is your church God's last day church? I guarantee you every pastor will say, yes, we are God's last day church. Nobody's going to say, yeah, we're not, but we have good coffee and donuts. You know, they're, they're going to tell you that we are God's last day church. Now, I want to point out that God's last day church would not appear until after the woman came out of the wilderness. When, when, when was she in the wilderness? From 538 to 1798, right? Now, don't miss this. The woman is helped by the earth, and it's when she's in that more comfortable location that the Bible says she gives birth for one last time. And when she does, the final seed that she gives birth to, it appears. So where would it appear? It would appear in the new world after the year 1798. Why? Because from 538 to 1798, the woman was in the wilderness. But after that period, the earth helps her, and now she gives birth one final time to the final children that she would have. Now, look at the founding dates of these churches. These churches all have faithful Christians. I want to be very clear. But none of these churches could be the remnant church. Do you know why? Because the remnant church has to appear after the wilderness period in the new world. And look at the dates. These churches all were founded between that wilderness period. They are, and again, I'm not saying they're not Christians. I'm simply saying they do not meet the description of God's last day remnant church. Let me go back to verse 17 again. I want to point out, it says, The dragon was wroth with the woman and meant to wait, went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, let me point out something. If you go to a church and you say, Pastor, is your church the remnant church? If he says yes, number one, does his church arise after 1798? Was it founded in the new world? Number two, does that church keep God's commandments? Because the remnant are described as keeping God's commandments. Now, folks, I'm going to tell you right now. Most churches today teach that the Ten Commandments have been done away with. Oh, they'll say things like, yeah, Jesus just wants you to love but we don't have to obey the Ten Commandments anymore. But when you go through the Bible, it's pretty clear. I mean, not only Jesus, but Paul, James, these writers all make it very clear that God expects us, if we have love in our hearts, love is the fulfilling of the law. That's how we obey God's commandments. And so if you find a church that says, yes, we're the remnant, we arose after 1798 in the new world, and we keep God's commandments, then you have to ask yourself, okay, pastor, because the Bible says if you break one of the commandments, you've broken how many? All of them. Pastor, does your church keep the fourth commandment? Now, I want to point something out. When you put this criteria, you eliminate like 98% of Protestant churches today. Why? Most churches would have no problem with nine of the commandments. But this one commandment, why? It's because of tradition. It's because of history. But this is the one commandment that people attribute. This was only for the Jews. So when you say, are, is your church the remnant? Sure, we're the remnant. Did they arise after 1798 in the new world? Do they, do they keep the commandments? Do they keep the Sabbath? If they say yes, there's something else that the church has to have. It says they not only keep the commandments of God, but it says they have something. What do they have? 
the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to look closely. I'm going to share with you two verses from the book of Revelation. The Bible says, and I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, see thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the what? Is the spirit of prophecy. So what is this verse telling us? The testimony of Jesus is simply the gift of prophecy. Now, what does that mean? That means not only does God's last day church have to have, have to arise after 1798 in the new world, keeping the commandments, including the Sabbath, but they have to have the gift of prophecy. Now, I don't know if you read your Bible in the book of Acts, but noticed that the early Christian church, they had active prophets. Did you notice that? They had, you know, these men that could prophesy and they were speaking what God asked them to speak. But I want to just make a point here. In order to have a prophet, there's something else you have to have. Look closely. Then said he unto me, see thou do it not, I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren, the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book, worship God. Now let me go back two slides. I want to show you something. Did you notice that when John fell to worship the angel, the angel said this. He said, see thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy what? I'm of your brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Did you see that? So the angel says, don't worship me. I am just like your brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Well, who are John's brethren? John's brethren are the prophets. So don't miss this. If you have a church that arose after 1798 in the new world that keeps the commandments, that keeps the Sabbath, that has the gift of prophecy, that church has to have a genuine prophet because you can only give the gift of prophecy to a prophet. Does that make sense? Now, the Bible says in Revelation 14, 12, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. This is the same group. But the Bible tells us that they give a special message. And this is in verse 6. It says, I saw another angel. This just means messenger. Fly in the midst of heaven. Having the everlasting what? Gospel to preach unto them that dwell in the earth and to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him. Why? For the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Verse 9 says, the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand. Now, I won't get into the whole thing, but I will say this. God's last day church is not only described as arising after 1798 in the new world, keeping the commandments, including the Sabbath, having the testimony of Jesus or the gift of prophecy, which means they have a prophet, but they will be talking to the world about the everlasting gospel. Well, what is that? Well, it says in that verse that they'll be telling people to fear God because the hour of his judgment has come, and they'll be warning people against receiving the mark of the beast. I got to tell you, there are churches that have 60,000 people that attend every weekend, but those churches are not talking to people about the final judgment or warning them about not receiving the mark of the beast. I can tell you that even though there are many sincere Christians that may attend there, God's last day church is giving a message that is distinct it's not the prosperity gospel. It's not the be-all-you-can-be gospel. It's the everlasting gospel that warns people that we are living in the final days of Earth's history, and it's time to worship the Creator. You know, when I was a young child, uh, my father was a minister for the Presbyterian Church. And it's interesting because when I was growing up, we would go to church, and we had... We had the best grandparents. Our grandparents, every, this was back in the 80s, okay? So every birthday, they'd give us this little white envelope. And we would, you know, be so excited. We'd go home, we'd open it, and grandma and grandpa would put a crisp, brand new $50 bill. Back in the 80s, $50 bought you basically any toy you wanted to buy, okay? And... I remember, these were some of the nicest people. Every Sunday, we looked forward. My grandmother was a wizard of a cook. She could cook. If you've ever been to Korean barbecue, she made that like every Sunday, okay? And so like, we had an amazing group of people there 
at that church. But as I got older, as I began to study for myself, I realized that it's always a dangerous thing to assume that just because there's a nice group of people going somewhere, that that's necessarily the right place that you're supposed to be. One day, I was sitting where you are sitting right now. And as I heard the presentation, I realized something for the first time. God has a description of what his people look like in the last days. And you know, through this seminar, we have been laying a foundation that shouldn't surprise you. Obedience to God's commandments, salvation by faith through grace. Uh, We've been talking about these prophecies that point to, you know, the papacy as the Antichrist. And we've been looking at these things night after night. And finally, I realized for the first time in my life, God has a group of people that are fitting the description that Revelation describes. And in my understanding, that group of people is none other than the Seventh-day Adventist church. And that's why I became a Seventh-day Adventist. Well, you know, one of the things that I've learned is that we don't go to church because there's good people there. Because in any church you go to, there will be good people there. Can you say amen? But this is what the Bible says. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the what? Now, I want to challenge you. If you go to a church and you know that they're teaching unbiblical things about death, why why would you go there? The church is the pillar and ground of what? Truth. Does that make sense? If you go to a church and you know that they're teaching that there's a seven-year tribulation in the future, right away, that should tell you that this couldn't be God's true church because the church is the pillar and ground of what? Truth, right? So why am I saying this? Many people, they go to a church and they want to find the truth at that church. That's the wrong sequence. You should go to the Bible Find the truth in the Bible, and then find a church that's teaching the truth from the Bible. Amen? And that's what we've been doing here in the seminar night after night. It's no secret. There is a group of people that the Bible describes as keeping the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I want to say something. I don't say that every Seventh-day Adventist will be saved. I don't say that. Because the truth is that Just because you join a church, that doesn't guarantee you salvation. We have salvation through Jesus. Does that make sense? But I know that the reason I made the decision to become a Seventh-day Adventist was because this is where I found they were teaching God's word and they were teaching the truth from his word. Tonight, I want to ask my associates to give you a card that looks like this. And as they pass this card out, I want to ask you to just go with me through these six points that are listed on this card. Here's what it says. It says, I choose to take the Bible only as my guide to truth. If you can say, yes, Lord, I want to take the Bible and the Bible only as my guide for truth, please, could you put a check by that first one? The second one says, I realize how error and traditions have been kept in many Christian churches. We've been talking about that through this seminar. And if you understand that, would you put a check by that second one? The third one says, I choose to come out of Babylon and false worship and into the one faith of Jesus. You know, folks, we've been talking a little bit about Babylon. We'll talk about it more tomorrow night. But if you understand that you want to come out of error and you want to follow the truth, please, could you put a check by that third one? The fourth one says, I would like to become part of God's remnant church. Let me say something. If you could find a church that is closer to the remnant than this one, I will be with you there next Sabbath because it's not a church that saves us. Does that make sense? But as I've searched, this is the one church that fulfills those characteristics. And if you want to say tonight, Lord, I want to be part of God's remnant church, would you put a check by that fourth one? The fifth one says, I would like to follow Jesus in baptism. Now, We've talked about baptism in the seminar, and if that's something that the Spirit of God is impressing you to take, please put a check by that that fifth one. And the sixth one says, I'd like a personal visit. 
Now, if you check that sixth one, it's because you have a question, it's because there's something that you're struggling with. If you do check that sixth one, would you be so kind as to leave your phone number so that I can get in touch with you to make an appointment with you? As we close this evening, I want to invite you to please bow your heads with me as we pray, and then I'm going to ask my associates to collect this card. Father in heaven, it's my prayer tonight that each of us would really understand and examine the motive of why we go where we go. Sometimes it's because of friends. Sometimes it's because it's a big place. Sometimes it's close to us. Sometimes there's all kinds of reasons. Lord, my prayer is that we would look at the truth as being the primary reason for why we seek a church. Help us to find the truth in your word and then find a church that's teaching that truth. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.